the last thing I have to say about this movie is not Forrest Whitaker dancing to Afrobeats. <laughs> <laughs> It's Alyssa here. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And if Brendan had a superpower, it would be knowing the right thing to say in all situations, whether it's to make you feel good, to tell you that, oof, girl, you're doing something wrong, or to make you feel supported. Brendan's got the word. I'm dead. I, I will, what they say, clear a bitch. Isn't that what the kids say? Um, But hi, everyone. Uh, it's Brendan. And my pronouns are she, her, hers. And if Alyssa had a superpower, it would be making her loved ones feel loved no matter what, aka that ride oh. for life energy. You know, I texted her this morning in a slight distress and she was ready to come out swinging um and also <laughs> I was yes you were ready like I was I was like oh let me just let me be real about what happened so you don't think that I'm in distress here <laughs> I was being dramatic also your second superpower I would say you have multiple is the detective skills because you be finding shit out and I just be amazed <laughs> in, a, in another life I think I would be a spy so that's it yeah that's it. <laughs> I would want it. I still, I still want it. I love spy movies and spy novels. And I think if I was more patriotic, that probably would have been my second career. But here we are. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, before we get started, we just wanted to shout out our supporters this week. So a huge thank you to Lachelle, Mayada, Davian, and Tina for donating to the podcast. Your contributions are much, much appreciated. Absolutely. And if you would like to donate to the podcast, head over to our website, zorasdaughters.com and click support ZDP. And of course, for the rest of y'all out there, saving up your Christmas coins, right? We love, love, love other forms of support, which can include sharing our posts on social media are leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much to Hannah and Samurai Moss. I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name. Uh, <laughs> for your great comments. We, we really love and appreciate it. Yay. All right. Thank you, y'all. Girl. Girl. Brendan. Can you believe it's our last episode of the semester? <laughs> yes and no. Like... <laughs> I'm tired, but this is, this has been such a dream. The things that like we've done to make this season happen, like the fundraising, the production and editing, which girl, thank you so much. Cause I'm, my brain don't do that. And social media, like it was definitely challenging, but like I've said, this, this podcast has been a blessing. Like you are a superstar in the editing booth is what I'll call it. The editing booth um, <laughs> with the designs for the flyers, like the website, like all of that. And I'm just so appreciative of your labor. Thank you. Well, as I always say, whenever we do our talks, you are the brains of this operation, mm -mm. you know, without your suggestions on what to read and kind of helping me through them as well. You know, this podcast wouldn't really, it wouldn't be what it is. So I am also mm -hmm. appreciative of your labor and presence with oh, me. It's a partnership. It's a partnership. 
Yeah, and we're working on that, y'all. <laughs> we about to make we about to make it official. Yo, we make it some you know? moves. Twenty twenty one, look out. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> and honestly, we've been seeing all of your Spotify wrap ups, and I'm so shook as to how many people's top five that we're in. I, I mean, can't actually be listening to us. Exactly. Wow. Like, I'm I'm just really grateful that. You know, people really just want to hear two grad students and friends shooting the shit, talking about stuff, doing stuff that we do anyways. So we're appreciative of that. There's this one professor, and I really love what she said about the podcast. She said that it's like we're breaking the fourth wall of scholarly production and discussion. And I, I was like, that is perfect. That really covers what it is that I hoped that we were doing, you know, just demonstrating that academics aren't just people up in some ivory tower locked away from the real world. Well, at least not all of us. <laughs> I mean, yeah, um, some of us prefer to live that way. Um, but this podcast has also brought us so many opportunities. Like we've been able to do Black feminist anti-racism workshops with different companies. Like we've done different talks and presentations and classes. And while we're on that subject, right? Like we are open in 2021 for our presentations and workshops. So if y'all want us to come and talk to your student group, to your classroom, to your department, to your company, contact us at zorasdaughterspod at gmail.com. And we will be there. As we promised in the last episode, we have a couple events to announce. Hey, so first, (laughs) we are hosting a discussion section. Y'all asked for it. We are providing. Uh, We're hosting a discussion section on December 10th at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Is it Eastern Daylight Time? You know what? Whatever. New York time. (laughs) New York time, 3 p.m. on the East Coast. Yes. And that is going to be on Zoom And it'll just be an opportunity to meet and discuss with us and other listeners about topics that we talked about over the semester, as well as have us answer some of your questions. So if you'd like to participate, just DM us or email us with your name and email address and just let us know a topic or a question that you that you might want to discuss with the group. So that's it. Simple DM, you know, and we'll send you the Zoom link an hour before the event because we're hoping not to get Zoom bombed. But yes, we're really looking forward to discussing and communing with all of you. Yes. And we have a little surprise for you all. And if you follow us on Instagram, you've seen the clue that we have for our second end of the semester event because we just love you so much. It's a photo of a couple of books. And if that didn't clue you in, da 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 da, it's a book giveaway. Da 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 da. <laughs> da, 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 da. Uh, we have teamed up with Cafe Con Libros, which is an Afro Latinx owned indie feminist bookstore and coffee shop in Brooklyn. And we're going to give away not one, but two. Two. Books, two. <laughs> two of y'all. Um, and this book is going to be dope. It's going to be relevant from at some point this year. So up for grabs is a copy of Zora Noah Hurston's Hitting a Straight Lick with a Crooked Stick, which is a collection of eight lost, quote unquote, short stories that she wrote during the Harlem Renaissance. And another lucky listener will get a copy of Transcendent Kingdom by Yah Jassy, which we discuss in episode seven, Holy is a Black Woman. That's right. That's right. So the contest opens on December 9th at 12 p.m., Gosh, I wrote Eastern Standard Time again, but I think it might be Eastern Daylight Time. But anyways, 12 p.m. 
on the East New Coast. New York time. And it closes December 15th at 11.59 p.m., same time zone. And so winners will be announced by December 18th. And to enter, all you need to do is like the photo, follow Zora's Daughters and Cafe Con Libros on Instagram, tag a friend, and share the post in your stories and tag us because hashtags aren't working on Instagram right now. And we will also be posting little bonus questions throughout the week that'll get you an extra entry. So I hope that you have been keeping up with the episodes. Just get a little bit. Just you get know, a little bit more. <laughs> just, and if you haven't, it's no better time than the present. You know, we have a lot going on over here. So we're just going to jump into the episode with our What's the Word segment. So Alyssa, what's the word for today? Our word for the day is actually a phrase. Hashtag black girl magic. So where did this phrase come from? It seemed almost like all of a sudden people were just saying it, commenting with it, posting black girl magic things and putting it on the covers of magazines. But it's actually a shortened version of a phrase coined by Kashan Thompson in 2013, who started using the hashtag black girls are magic. So it wasn't just a phrase that suddenly went viral. And I don't even know if we can say viral anymore because it's just triggering re the Rona. The panty. <laughs> the fanny but it's a phrase that actually gradually gained in popularity so she was just kind of you know using it on twitter using it among her friends and then she made some t-shirts and some sweaters and eventually they were worn by celebrities like willow smith and amanda stenberg right so in kashan thompson's words she told the la times i say magic because it's something that people don't always understand Sometimes our accomplishments might seem to come out of thin air, but a lot of times the only people supporting us are actually other black women. Right. So Kashan Thompson is the epitome of that. People were like this phrase, black girl magic, it just came out of nowhere, but it actually came from somewhere. It started between her and her circle of friends and then it kind of grew from there. But of course, we can also say that the narrative of internet movements and phrases coming out of nowhere is just another instantiation of blackness as nothingness. And so mm. I'm I'm referring to Afro pessimism here, which we really need to do an episode on. <laughs> like we've been skirting around it. I and, know. <laughs> uh. But the fact of a black creator makes it easy for mainstream culture to erase our contributions. So we saw that with the renegade dance. And as I learned yesterday, the phrase, the term cuffing season, everyone and every brand's mama says cuffing season. And I had no idea that cuffing season was actually created by a black man. He designed calendars that said like where in cuffing season we are and all of this stuff. And so I just want to shout out Rennie Riot on Instagram for sharing that. And I had no idea that cuffing season was that deep, but... Well, one is probably because I'm a serial monogamist. And two, um, <laughs> it was okay. Me and my therapist talked about that. And um, it also just makes sense. Like, when do Black people ever really have fast things? But right. I say that and then I say we'll get to that later. Um, but Sean Thompson developed hashtag Black Girls Are Magic as a way to honor the Black women and girls in our life who make a way out of no way. Right? That's the common Black colloquialism. Mm -hmm. And make black life when and where it should not be. And so both hashtag black girl magic and hashtag black girls are magic celebrate the contributions of black women and girls in a world that is determined to erase them, negate them, co-op them, blackfish them. Mm -hmm. 
and, you know, dot, dot, dot. But the primary difference between black girls are magic and black girl magic in my theorization, right, is that the phrase black girl magic operates as a, and I'm quoting Sarah Whitney here, mediated discourse affirming African-American girls' contributions, strength, and resilience that can be separated from their bodies, right? So you can have black girl magic exist and people will use it as something that is separated from the actual body or flesh of a black girl. Mm. But saying that black girls are magic serves as this kind of complete statement that affirms the humanity and embodied magic that is black life and social death. And it is inseparable from the girl herself. Mm. So this magic then becomes the making of life an ordinary, which we'll get to, or an excellent one, one that is filled with care, joy, and community. You know, the daily shit that black girls be doing, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what what do you mean by mediated discourse? When I say mediated discourse, I'm I'm saying that it's it's mediated through different types of media, pers- like social media, news. And that's like the two that's coming off the top of my head, even academic papers that are about black girl magic. So it's mediation mm-hmm. means it has to pass through something in order to get to you. Right. And so in that process of mediation, there can be like misnaming or misrecognition of black girls, which can make black girl magic problematic is when we right. get to that mediation and then it becomes something that's disfigured from what Kushan Thompson originally imagined. Right. Interesting. So in that sense, the phrase black girls are magic is more humanizing than black girl magic. Yes, I think so, because because there is it becomes it removes it from being like a thing like black girl magic is an object, something Mm. that you can label versus saying that this person is magic. Right. um, So that's how I imagine it. At least a difference in my head. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I remember when Jesse Williams, he referenced the phrase at the BET Awards a few years back. And he said, just because we're magic doesn't mean we're not real. And I was nodding my head like, yes, snaps. Yes. (laughs) But then he left. Anyway. Well, yeah, but like, okay, you know, we're, we're snapping for, we're snapping for what he said, (laughs) not what he did. (laughs) But it's like, yeah, black girls are magic because we faced unbelievable adversity and yet we're still here so this phrase is very much rooted in pain and so it's both a celebration of overcoming oppression and dehumanization it's basically a celebration of our survival but it's also a critique of a society that leaves black girls behind particularly in favor of supporting the endangered you know the quote-unquote endangered black male preach on it (laughs) and so savannah shangay who we are reading today actually you know, she calls it black boy special. So it's like this category of reverence and urgency that has coalesced around a century of hand wringing over the fate of black men. And so that's her quote. And so in that sense, I have some worry about like about the dehumanizing potential of people seeing us as magic. It's like, oh, she's magic. She'll overcome anything. She doesn't need our help, support, protection. And then in that sense, it perpetuates the strong black woman stereotype and... So I think a lot of the suffering of black women and girls gets obscured, particularly as a result of our North American social interest in, you know, the American dream, seeing people persevere and overcome and pull up their bootstraps. Mm-hmm. 
And what you're saying is actually like one of the main critiques of hashtag Black Girl Magic. And since it is this mediated discourse, that mediation, as I said, right, allows for this kind of misrecognition of Black girls suffering and also like a demonization of Black girls and a normalization of this kind of ordinary Black girl experience mm-hmm. that's framed by capitalist misogynoirs, like anti-Black violence. It makes the ordinary black girl experience something that is unremarkable and thus can mm-hmm. be ignored. And it is remarkable because it's like, it's remarkable that we're even here. Like here that you. is, that is the fundamental thing that makes us magic. Right. Cause y'all keep trying to kill us. But anyway, the discourse is still also, here. We're still here. Despite we're still the haters, here. we're still here. <laughs> um, this discourse also provides a space for respectability politics to flourish. And I think mm. after mm-hmm. 2013, we see this kind of, you know, the Black Girl Magic show that's sponsored by Essence and is on BET and this kind of like uptake of it, but to, to propagate a certain type of Black Girl Magic, this rubric where, you know, you have to be a Black girl who's 12, who's graduating with her second <laughs> bachelor's degree in engineering, who's also in her third year, her PhD, and that is what makes you magical which makes you also superhuman. But then that's when you're allowed to be seen as something worthy of protection, of love and of care. And Mm -hmm. some girls, just by existence, right, are excluded from this category of Black girl magic. We talked about this a little bit in a thread a while ago on Twitter. We'll have to bring Mm -hmm. it back up. And so when I think about who Black girl magic excludes, I'm thinking about the people who aren't, who would not be fitting into this normative frame of what it means to be excellent. Mm-hmm. So it will exclude disabled girls, right? Black girls with chronic illness, illnesses who choose not to like to over overwork themselves to compensate, mm-hmm. quote unquote, right? For these disabilities or illnesses, these black women who are killed by the police, who are killed as a result of intimate partner violence, right? They're not magical enough just by being, they have to have been someone who lived an extraordinary, respectable life. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, that question of if they didn't overcome, if they haven't overcome, if, you know, they didn't survive, is it because they're not magical enough? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I don't think that was Thompson's intention at all. At all. Not, not at all. Um, but I just, I think it's important to be wary and critical of, of sweeping statements and just think about how they might obscure the kinds of everyday achievements of just living, of just living as a Black woman, living as a Black girl. And I think that that brings us nicely into our next segment, what we're reading. So Brendan, what are we reading today? Today... We are reading Black Girl Ordinary, Flesh, Carcerality, and the Refusal of Ethnography by Savannah Shange. Savannah Shange is an urban anthropologist who works at the intersections of race, place, sexuality, and the state. She is an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of California, Santa Cruz, with research interests in circulated and lived forms of Blackness, ethnographic ethics, and Afro-pessimism, and also queer of color critique. Her first book, Progressive Dystopia, Abolition, Anti-Blackness, and Schooling in in San Francisco, excuse me, is amazing and has already been heralded as a Black feminist anthro classic. So the piece that we're reading today is an article published in Transforming Anthropology in 2019 that she writes is an ethnography of social death in gentrifying San Francisco. And girl, where do we, where do we start? Oh, well, 
I think that Dr. Shangay has a gift, is a gift. <laughs> like, period. I loved reading this essay. The end notes made so much of what she was saying accessible. I loved that she's very much imbricated in not just the Black studies literature, but in Black culture. She, I mean, she's a Black woman herself. And so, you know, she makes these like Biggie, Tupac, Nas references and critiques. And I'm like, sis, I stand. <laughs> this was fantastic. You know, she Me wasn't too. just kind of, she wasn't just like paying lip service to this kind of stuff. Like she uses AAVE, the, you know, Black English or African-American vernacular English in the essay. Like, and so she says that the essay is, quote, an attempt to do both theory and ethnography at the same damn time. I was like, us too. That's what we're doing. We're trying. (laughs) (laughs) So I think, and the other thing was that I think we're having like a really good full circle moment in a way, right? So Shange's article heavily mobilizes Spiller's theory of the flesh as a hermeneutic to, quote, understand black embodiment in the late liberal U.S., A hermeneutic is an explanatory or interpretive word or phrase or framework that serves as a method or theory for interpretation. And so flesh in this sense as a a hermeneutic, it provides a way for us to kind of interpret or understand or make meaning of black life in the afterlife of slavery. So thinking about black being as flesh, it takes slavery, quote, out of time. So it doesn't exist as this spectacular event that happened in the past. It operates as a structuring force of life that is ongoing. So the world that we live in now is still structured by the dynamics of slavery. Mm-hmm. We explored Spillers' monumental or ovaric intervention in our episode, Ain't I a Woman, if you want some more information on that. And I say ovaric because that is what Shange uses instead of seminal. Because Seminole has its connections with semen and the mass. Her mind. It's like her mind. Her mind. How? I know. Uh, (laughs) In this article, Shange draws on her ethnographic research at a progressive high school in San Francisco, um, which she names Robeson High School, to really show us like this anti-black, and I would say anti-black girl liberal reality that is the progressive political project. She worked as a teacher at this school while conducting research. And over the course of her field work, she worked with Black boys and girls at this diverse public school that began as an effort to redress the harmful impacts of systemic racism and economic exploitation in the city of San Francisco. And she argues in this essay that the gendered and raced patterns of school discipline at Robeson will help us, the reader, apprehend the afterlife of slavery. So she starts by kind of giving us a read of Black girlhood studies. And one of the things that we want to highlight that's pertinent for this episode is her read of the Black Girl Ordinary. And she says that the Black Girl Ordinary is the lesser known corollary of hashtag Black Girl Magic, which she calls it's the government name, (laughs) which I thought was cute. Um, And she defines Black Girl Magic as this circulated, selfied, carefree mode of Black femininity. So Black Girl Ordinary, as the lesser known name of Black Girl Magic, centers a, quote, materialist reading of gendered Black self-making and refuses the misogynoir that silences the common and quotidian experiences of Black girl in pursuit of this, quote, this, quote, exceptional mm-hmm. Black girl. So so the girl who is 12 years old and yeah. has two degrees and is doing her PhD. You know, it's the exceptional. And, and it's vegan. And I mean, <laughs> wrote a cookbook. 
commit commits no sins. You know, we we embrace that black girl. We love her too, but mm-hmm. we also are thinking about the ordinary, right? And so, yeah, I mean, I, we should we should also say we're not we're not critiquing the black girl. Yes. We're critiquing the society that uplifts her as the kind of quintessential, like the quintessential ideal version of of what a black girl should be. Right. Who adheres to kind of white societal norms of excellence. Yes. But even more so because, you know, white people can be mediocre, but she's not allowed to be. But that's that's another talk for another time. <laughs> um, <laughs> which what I love about this black or ordinary framework, right? It's, it's a rejection of the talented 10th logic. It's this looking at magic, right? This conjuring, quote unquote, is the word that Shange uses that occurs in black girls' everyday lives, like the ways that they make life livable and lovable and joyful and also the ways that life can make them sad, right? And so mm-hmm. what I also love about the emphasis on the ordinary is that it doesn't elide the varied forms of violence that black girls experiences. And right? this is not just a story of overcoming societal obstacles. It's an ethnography of black girl life in this violence, through this violence, but also outside of these violent anti-black institutions. Mm-hmm. So there, there's two things that I was going to say. One is just an example and one is just a clarification <laughs> for folks who are not in anthropology. Dr. Shange, I believe, has a master's in teaching. So mm-hmm. it wasn't just by virtue of her being an anthropologist at a prestigious university that was like, okay, we'll just let you teach in this school and we'll let you teach these Black students. It wasn't like that. She, <laughs> she was a teacher. And so I think it's just important to distinguish between what anthropology used to be like, where it was just these, like, these white men going into these communities and by virtue of their whiteness, they become experts or they become chiefs. President. Presidents of things. <laughs> so it's not like that. She she does have a degree in teaching. And then just to kind of illustrate Black Girl Ordinary, Shange, she actually says that Cardi B is the quintessential Black Girl Ordinary because she just calls herself a regular, regular, schmegular girl from the Bronx. And she resists these respectability politics. Hello, do we need to talk about WAP again? <laughs> And also some of these like colorist norms. And if you want to know more about that, you can check out our last episode. But she rejects these colorist norms as well that would make, you know, a light-skinned Dominican woman special rather than just regular, regular, schmegular. Ooh, I like, I had thought about that too as we were thinking about the episode. I was like, the interplay between colorism and what makes Black girls magical is something that we can discuss if we have time. We'll see. (laughs) <laughs> okay. I I mean, I noticed that in the thing that we are going to talk about <laughs> that I watched today. I noticed that very clearly. But anyhow, Shange draws attention to a liberal double bind, which is essentially that even in an institution that bills itself as anti-racist, whose end goal is liberation, the space is still run through with anti-blackness and it operates as an extension of the state apparatus. And so she draws on Saidia Hartman's book, Scenes of Subjection, to discuss, quote, the pedagogy of respectability. And so to learn more about respectability, we talk about it in episode three. There's some anthros in this house. The school emphasizes and trains students in this proper spirit and character, right? And that's, that's a phrase from Scenes of Subjection. So there was also a kind of, in slavery, there was an expectation of a particular spirit and character of the enslaved. 
And so the staff, in their effort to teach respectability, they kind of communicate that Black girlhood is incompatible with these norms of propriety and femininity, and it reinforces the ways that Black people, and especially Black girls, are excluded from personhood, but also of gender and of kinship, of kinship networks. And so one of the ways that Shange illustrates this Spillersian, I'm guessing on how to say that one, but I like it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> if, you like, if you love it, I like it. You know, it's good. <laughs> Um, but the way that she demonstrates this Spillersian un- ungendering of Black girls is the way that Black girls are equally as likely as Black boys to be highly policed and disciplined in the school. But then as a comparison, Latino boys are twice as likely than Latino girls to, to be disciplined. So among them, among the Latinx students, gender or specifically femininity provides a protective function that Spillers has shown in, in that essay, Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe. Um, she shows that it's lost among Black women because they are made equally subject to rape, torture, labor, and death. Yes, this was such a, a salient point um, that really brings together, honestly, so much that we've talked about this semester. Mm-hmm. And also what gets lost in conversations about the school-to-prison pipeline and this focus on the quote-unquote endangered Black male at the expense of the Black girl, usually. And so Kimberly Crenshaw and Monique Moore have done excellent work on the push out of Black girls in public schools. Um, that is due to this focus on Black male exceptionality that's coupled with the enforcement of white definitions of femininity in classrooms. Mm. And what Shange does here that I think is brilliant, she draws on Hartman's theory about burdened individuality, which talks about the struggles that quote unquote emancipated Black people experience post slavery, where we have internalized the discipline of slavery, right? We've internalized what um, Hartman says that Shange quotes is internalized the whip. So no longer do we need an overseer to kind of enforce this subjugation onto us. We have actually internalized it and enforced it on each other through respectability and through these kind of norms around gender in the classroom, especially. And so the Black girls in Shange's ethnography experience that reality daily where they are punished for their inability to internalize the whip and to live with these constructs of a quote-unquote appropriate feminine behavior and they were frequently dismissed from class and so their frequent displacement was also the reason why eventually many of them were expelled from the school altogether whereas and she doesn't really talk about this in the article but in the book, she talks, she touches upon the fact that black boys in these same classroom spaces were given the freedom to be, and, you know, I'm going to use this word, affectively discordant, right? So they were able to kind of show this defiance and it was seen as them being able to express themselves. And the teachers were like, oh yeah, this is like reparations for slavery because in slavery, black men weren't able hmm. to express themselves. Hmm. And so it's this idea that like black boys need a place to be free and to be themselves, but black girls need to give the program and act like quote unquote young women. And and of course, acting like a young woman means acting in a way that is commensurate with white femininity, which as you know, we've talked about a lot, we are excluded from that. It is it is an impossibility. So this is this was just such a great essay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But I found I found the geographical to be of interest here as well. I mean, you were talking about displacement, but then there's, you know, there's also emplacement, like an idea mm-hmm. of the spaces that people occupy within the city, around the city, um, and then how that reflects 
or is projected onto who they are and how they're perceived by particularly teachers, these enforcers, enforcers of the state's apparatus, right? Right. And so she talks about the Sunnydale girl. And a teacher talks about how you can tell a Sunnydale girl. Sunnydale is a large San Francisco housing project. The, and the teacher uh, says that Tarika, who's a girl from the Sunnydale housing project, she says that her story was already written before she even came into the school. And so Shange's analysis is that Tarika and girls like her are of the landscape. And so because of that emplacement, because of that origination, their futures are limited they're foreclosed, they're unimaginable, and particularly in the view of a liberal teacher. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of, I was reading this and thinking with Catherine McKittrick's Plantation Futures and just thinking about the way Sunnydale is described. So it's called, the nickname is The Swamp, and but the ideas about what the place is like gets projected onto the people who live and are from there. So mm-hmm. the idea is that in order to live and survive in such a quote-unquote uncivilized place, you yourself must be uncivilized. This geographical narrative then informs how people talk about and perceive and think about the people who live there. And so McKittrick explains in that essay, Plantation Futures, that that's what happened in Africa and the the new world. These lands were newer than Europe's. They were hot. They were dangerous. They are non-places. They're unfit for human habitation. So the people who do inhabit them, because they're simultaneously uninhabited, but inhabited, um, the people who do live there are subhuman, they're barbarous, and they're also dangerous as a result of the land. So it was interesting to think about how the geographical, these, these narratives of place, they, they begin to like reflect the, the people. Yeah. And I think that that's telling in discourse, sociological discourse, I got to get my dig in the last one for the season, right? <laughs> when we write about, when we think about the urban, right? And how urban, when we talk about urban music or urban, et cetera, stands for the black, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then that itself has its own set of meanings. But what Shange does by pointing us to the urban, to the black girl to the black female body in these spaces is that she tells us that the black female body constitutes so makes space but it is also constituted by space what makes Sunnydale this quote-unquote bad place this unlivable uninhabitable place is not only the years and generations of state neglect that then gets displaced onto the black people who live there. And right? so the, the place is in disrepair because of the black people and not because of the state's anti-blackness, mm-hmm. um, but also this imagined and real presence of these deviant black women and girls who then make this space uninhabitable through their deviance, but also are shaped by this space to become really, um, they are imagined to be like these black pre-mothers. Mm-hmm. And so these black girls are denied a childhood and thus are like not allowed to access protected forms of femininity. And Shange tells us right, that black girl affect then points us to the ghetto. It points us to the physical space of deviance and of state violence and also points us to the structural location of the black girl herself. You know, I'm an affective scholar, quote unquote, <laughs> whatever you, you know, whatever. And I was reading that and I was like, of course, 
right? Like mm-hmm. we live that, that's, that is our life. Like our bodies point to locations and also tell stories about where we are in society, right? As black women, as former black girls, just genius. Like I'm clapping my hands. I was thinking about it in, you know, in relation to, to your work, of course. And just thinking about these affective norms and affective misrecognition that that plagues these black girls in the school, right? And I mean, it's, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't say it plagues them really. It's a problem amongst the staff and the teachers that they see attitude. They see, you know, they see a troublemaker. They see a chatterbox. That's, that was on one of my report cards when I was a kid. (laughs) Really? Yeah. My mom did not let me forget it. She was so upset that my, that my report card said that. I think it might've been in grade three or four or something. Oh, well, I don't know. Maybe I, I was, was. Maybe I wasn't. But <laughs> I was so sneaky. I was so sneaky with it. Like I would just pass notes, so you wouldn't hear mm. me. But all of my bullying, etc., would be on the page. <laughs> <laughs> A writer from day one, too. So those kinds of comments are these, you know, violations of the expectations of femininity. Uh, of femininity. Why is it? Why? Why? Why are we misrecognized in this way? I mean, that's the that's the point of the project. Mm-hmm. If we were to be seen as who we are, the world wouldn't exist in the way that it does. Mm-hmm. And so, I think we should we should talk <laughs> like we should talk about why we're even talking about black girl magic, black girl ordinary. <laughs> we're gonna go ahead and move to our next section. What? What in the world? Like, what in the world? We thought we would bring a little holiday spirit. (laughs) Even if you do not celebrate the holiday season, we would bring it to you today with Jingle Jangle, the hot new movie that all the kids are talking about. And if you haven't watched it, (laughs) all the kids, all the adults, all the moms, all the dads um, have something to say about Jingle Jangle. And we will have some spoilers. So watch it before you listen or enjoy the spoilers because we're not going to hold back. Okay. 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 (laughs) First of all, I love musicals. I don't know if you could tell that by looking at me, but I love me a musical. I have seen Rent three times on stage and twice with part of the original cast. Okay? Okay. I'm just saying. Don't be jealous. But that's me. Oh, so here's my, here's my corny joke about that. Would you say that Rent lives rent-free in your mind? Oh, you're so corny. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, it does. <laughs> oh man, I oh, I was excited about posting that joke this whole episode. Okay, <laughs> I have a confession. I have never seen Rent the movie all the way through, but I have watched the musical selections from the movie on YouTube multiple times. I love musicals, but when I turned this movie on, I was not expecting this to be one. I think Forrest Whitaker, I didn't expect for him to sing at all. And my best friend, Destiny, she recommended that we watch this movie together. So we like got all queued up, turned the TV on, got my FaceTime in my hand. And we both were like, when people started singing, we were like, wait, pause. People are, it's a musical? Yeah, yeah, I didn't know. (laughs) 
and it kind of just took it to another level of enjoyment for me. Um, I love Anika Nani Rose. Like she is such a talented gem. And she and the other two black women in the movie were the best singers, like period. Everybody mm-hmm. else, I was like, y'all need to take some lessons. <laughs> But some of the song lyrics and some of the themes of the song, I was yeah. just like, mm. I'll say that I I really enjoyed Jingle Jangle with my critical hat off. Okay, y'all, I take my hat off and I enjoy everyday things like everyone else. Um, <laughs> and people who don't take that hat off, I'm just like, I can th- I I can only spend so much time with you. <laughs> there you go I, me. I did. Yeah, I mean, I did it to my friend like the first time that we hung out. The one who sent us the care packages. Mm Hey, hey. We had a class together, and we had to do an assignment where we'd go to a park and you know write down all this stuff. And so we were kind of hanging out after, and I was like, "All right, she seems like cool people's," but she just kept going into like the anthropological analysis and all this stuff of everything, and I was just like, "Okay, girl, you can chill. Like, you don't need to impress me." You don't need to try to impress me or pretend to be all anthropological all the time and critical and analytical. I get bored of that after a while. <laughs> like we could just be normal. And she was like, yes, speak yeah, to Aquarius. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> she's a Taurus. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, when she's stuck in her way, she's stuck in her ways. Yeah. I, I have my moments. I kind of go in and out. I know to turn it off when I'm at the club. I'm, oh, wait. When I was at the club because we are living in new times and the club is not a place that I currently go to. But watching movies is, is hard for me too. But I do enjoy bad black movies. And Alyssa and I have talked <laughs> about this before. Like I literally have like, I call them BBMs, which if that means something else, not good, please let me know because I really be saying BBM all the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, I, I call them BBMs. And like, if you follow me on Instagram and I'm watching one, sometimes <laughs> I'll show you highlights of them and have like reactions. Yes. And it's, it's like my favorite genre of movie because I don't know, there's a lot that goes into BBM. And so this was also a movie where I entered in thinking like, oh, this is Forrest Whitaker, Felicia Rashad. Like, this is a not a BBM. But then <laughs> it evolved into one, which made it enjoyable, but also made me like question mark throughout mm-hmm. several points of right. it, for sure. <laughs> well, I... I only question marked because you made me question mark. <laughs> Otherwise, I think I would have just, <laughs> I think I would have just truly enjoyed it. It had all the trappings, cliches and archetypes of a good Christmas movie for kids. It had, you know, a Scrooge, Daddy Warbucks figure, an overly enthusiastic little boy. You know, there was a Grinch slash the villain. And then there was the warm yet enigmatic grandmother type. You know, she had, she had a little something, a little secret up her sleeve. Um, and then, of course, you know, the bright and cheerful yes. little girl. <laughs> so I was like, all right, all right, cool. But then the first song that really kind of perked up my critical ear was the main character. She's the young Journey. She goes to vis- visit her, you know, Scroogey grandfather, Geronicus in Cobbleton. He's, you know, he was once the greatest inventor in the land whose designs were stolen by an, of course, light-skinned inventor who became upset that he was being overlooked by Geronicus. 
And so Journey is also a gifted inventor. And so she sings a song that says, the square root of impossible is me. I enjoyed the tune, but I was like, this has black girl magic written all over it. <laughs> Literally, which is why I was like, oh yeah, we're talking about black girl magic. We need to talk about Jingle Jangle and it's holiday season. So everything lined up, y'all. For that part, yeah, there's a lot of things to say. Light-skinned villain who's essentially his feelings were hurt and that turned him into a villain. So then, you know, there is the like light skin sensitivity trope mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. on top of the black girl magic, the light skinned black girl who saves her darker skinned grandfather. So there's a lot of colorism popping off here. But on top of that, for sure, was the black girl magic and the square root of impossible is me. And I'm going to be, I'm going to be that contrarian Gemini. I'm going to be that person (laughs) that instigates and stirs the pot by saying that I was so surprised by that some of the people that I saw who were like black feminist thinkers who loved this movie Mm. because I was like, am I just, am I, is my thinking hat a little too tight? Like, is it just too tight on my forehead? Like I, had ambivalent feelings about the song, The Square Root of Impossible is Me, because it's good and it's like not so good, right? Like, yes, like black girls, black women, black femmes, like we be making nothing out of something all the time. Like, you think that's impossible? Wait, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna show you how possible it is. On the other flip side of that coin, I ask, like, what would the world look like if we did not constantly ask for black women, girls and femmes to make something out of nothing, right? Like, what would the world mm-hmm. look like if that was not our responsibility. And so I think one of the main critiques I I have of this Black Girl Magic discourse that's separated from Kashawn Thompson's original intent is that it places so much responsibility on Black girls to be to be excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, while Black men and boys are, are still centered and then they are still seen as the only avenue through which Black uplift is possible. So like Black girls become the fodder for Black uplift. You know, we sacrifice their minds, their bodies, their talents, et cetera, to kind of rescue black communities and black families. But racial uplift is still only achieved through the elevation of a black man. Mm. Then the irony of that as well is that black women have always been construed as the downfall of the black community of the black family. Right. I am asterisking the the Moynihan report. Right. Like, yes, the Moynihan report sits at the center or really kind of brings into concentration a lot of these discourses about black mothers and black mm-hmm. women, especially. And, and, and our and our pathologization as well. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my gosh. So if you haven't read the Moynihan report, I mean, don't read it, but read the critiques of it <laughs> and <laughs> you'll see what we're what we're saying. This movie for me was an example of that dynamic. Mm hmm. We have Journey, this brilliant, beautiful, excellent black girl who still somehow manages to be a mule Mm -hmm. for her grandfather. Like she fixes E.T. toy. um, (laughs) Robot, Buddy 3000. (laughs) Who like, you know, has special abilities, you know, saves, saves the grandfather financially, teaches him how to love again. Mm -hmm. And it's like, but is she like 10, 11? I was like, why does she have to do all of this? But also, why did her mama send her? I, anyway, there's some plot <laughs> things that I just have many questions about. But it's like, why is she tasked with that responsibility? The movie, you know, the grandfather becomes, you know, it's a feel good ending. He has his reputation back. He he is selling 
toys again and he stops being rude to her. But I was like, I'm supposed to be happy about what this child went through to bring this man here. But I also do think on the other side of that, my analytical side is like, oh, like this is interesting to look into the psyche of black men because a black man did write this movie. Yeah. And it's like, oh, this is what y'all see black girls doing as like movie devices, I guess. Mm. Yeah, I'm trying to think of another movie where that was the case. Black Box. I don't know if you've seen that one, but that's another movie mm-hmm. where like the black girl is brilliant, smart. She actually kind of looks like the girl in this movie. Maybe it's the same. Thing. I don't know. I'll look that up. But like black girl <laughs> is smart, savior kind of thing. But literally just to help this grown black man exist and be. It's, it's so it's a weird genre of black girl magic. Every, every time I think about these kinds of movies, I think about a little light-skinned, maybe mixed-race girl with, you know, her hair all out. But that's like the type of girl that's able to do the saving. Like, that's the magical girl, right? Mm, like, the light-skinned yes. biracial girl is the magical black girl. Because we don't really see or experience Anika Nani Rose's character as a child. Like, she's there, but she, yeah. she, don't, she doesn't say anything. And, or what we do see... But actually, but actually, as a child, she's light-skinned. Which is why I was like, we don't see her. So as a child, she's <laughs> light-skinned, which is like, how? And then, but then also what you see, her father's interactions with her, she keeps bringing him these, like, inventions and him, like, not really entertaining her. I don't know mm-hmm. if you caught that. Like, she'd be like, oh, dad, let's do this. And he's like, oh, no, I got to work. Or like, oh, no, I got to do this. Or I'm almost there with this, that, and the third. But then it's like, her invention is what saves him. Really? Yeah. Like the, the buddy. She made the buddy 3000? Yeah. That was her. Cause his, all of his inventions were stolen. All of that book of his was oh. stolen. It was her invention that saves him. Dry. And he's like trying to rebuild the invention to like reconnect with her, supposedly, I guess. But it's like, oh. yeah, that's why I'm, it's confusing to me. Interesting. It's confusing to me about why so many black feminist people were like, this is a great movie. Um, as I was like, isn't, anyway, it's a good holiday movie though. I think yeah. it definitely brings the holidays <laughs> in. Has a yeah. mystical, magical thing about it. Right. Sure. So the movie has the mystical, magical thing. It has the black girl magic thing, which is essentially Journey kind of leaning into her love of inventing despite all of the people and by all of the people, it really is her grandfather, Geronicus, telling her no. But she's never deterred. She's always larger than life. And she never makes herself small to fit in, which is in some ways ironic because that's what's expected of Black girls, I guess, unless they look like her. I love that, though. I love that she was just like, yeah, I mean, you're going to say these things that could be borderline verbally abusive to me, but I'm going to do what I need to do. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to play with my friends. I'm going <laughs> to invent. I'm going to be myself and really validated herself and her own abilities. But I think also speaks to her mother's love for her, which is, you mm. know, I'm like, yes, Anika Nani Rose, though you made some strange decisions sending your daughter to this man she doesn't know. <laughs> I appreciate that you built her, like you helped her shape her sense of Mm self-worth. And I think that is a lesson too. Like, you know, as black women, as former black girls, like so much of our lives are shaped around what men think of us. Mm -hmm. You know, cishet, patriarchal understanding of the world and how we should shape our lives. But 
journey was like fuck this nigga like i'm gonna be my brilliant <laughs> self anyway like and while she still loved him and cared for him and wanted to be a part of his life she was still doing her thing mm-hmm. I, on the other hand like let them let them waste away like y'all want to be mad because we over here shining we over here with our did you see the sparkly wig thing i love it the sparkly <laughs> wigs and the little, the little the, charms that she had in her I I I love the um the mohawk. You know I've worn that style multiple times. So the mohawk that she has, and you do it so well. That's your other superpower. Natural hairstyles. Yes, and you (laughs) can do it all yourself. Meanwhile, I'm like I wash my hair and that's it. But (laughs) that's because I'm lazy. (laughs) So I read a review of the movie, and it said that films that feature black girls they often also feature their adultification. So a situation where they're forced to mature quickly as a result of the plot. And Eve's Bayou was an example. I don't know if you've seen mm-hmm. that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to watch it a lot as a kid, which I really shouldn't have been doing. Yeah, what? <laughs> oh, no. That's like, we used to be watching The Color Purple as a child, and that was not. Oh, we, well, we had both of those on VHS, and I watched both of them. Mm-hmm. VHS, y'all. <laughs> But they say that, you know, this is this is a film where we get to see a carefree black girl, you know, a girl who's cheerful and happy and and fully herself, kind of like Cindy Lou Who in The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. And so, you know, what do you think? Would you agree with that or? <laughs> I'll take that as a no. <laughs> um, let me do what I have seen other people do. I'm going to put my glasses here. <clears throat> And I say carefree where? Carefree <laughs> when? Um, what? Sis had to raise her grandfather, who I saw like some of the things he exchanges as emotionally abusive. Other people might disagree with me. But she was responsible for keeping that business afloat. Like she she was saving people out here. Right. I don't where was the lack of cares? Um. Where was it? She was feeding herself. She was taking care of herself. Um, maybe the carefree is because she was singing. I don't, maybe they um, shared one egg for dinner. Yo, they shared it. I was dead. I was like, the oh. egg for dinner. That's <laughs> one that's egg for dinner. Almost that's approaching Tyler Perry land. <laughs> oh my gosh, <laughs> Lordy. Um, yeah, I think. I think that the magic, and by by magic, I mean the resilience of journey, and not. You know the enchanted magic, mm-hmm. which I which I also loved. I thought that the the you know the images and the costumes and everything. I thought they were fantastic. That was on point. <laughs> like I was like, you know what, costume budget. You ain't got to worry about somebody wig shifting mid scene like in other listen movies. I thought the hairstyles were fantastic. Anyways, it was, it was beautiful. Like mm-hmm. like beautiful gowns. Aesthetically, it was lovely. <laughs> beautiful gowns. <laughs> but I think that the magic of 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 uh her black girl magic it happens through it it does still happen through a certain level of adultification where she's saving the toy shop she's bringing joy back to her grandfather's life like all of these things are things that she shouldn't be responsible for and yet she is so even though they're like oh she's carefree because she's singing and she's happy and she's completely herself and she doesn't shrink herself it's like there's still a level of her being expected to do things that someone her age shouldn't have to do. Yeah. And I wrote this in a paper a while back. I was like, what is interesting to me about the radical imagination, 
particularly for black girls, is that we can imagine black girls being free. We can imagine them being loved, but we can't imagine it outside of a context of violence. Mm. We can't imagine it. And I was like thinking about Angela Davis, one of her speeches, she talks about like the church bombing that happened and with the four girls who died and then the fifth survivor. And she talks about like, what if those four girls had lived and had gone on to be leaders of a movement? And it's like, even an imagination about black girls and living, right? There's still this, but you're living with the purpose to end violence or you're living with Mm -hmm. the purpose to like, you're living through a certain type of violence. And so it takes an extra level of imagination, I think, to think about this like carefree, unadultified black girl. It takes an Mm -hmm. extra level. Because even in, there's another kind of black girl magic movie with Oprah in it. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. A Wrinkle in Time. Even A Wrinkle in Time, black girl magic, still though, this kind of like weird child neglect storyline this like like, this violence so even even imagining this girl who's brilliant who's smart who's got all of this and still still a biracial big-haired light-skinned girl Mm -hmm. right even in that imagination she still exists within the realm of some type of like violence and i think that's really interesting to me um and I don't know the the black boy special movies out there. I don't think they ring or have like, I don't think they ring in the same register. Like, I don't think they hmm. have that kind of, I'm like, but I'm trying to think of a black boy special. <laughs> um, like Mike was what came to mind. <laughs> Wait, like Mike. Oh no, that was, what's his name? Little Bow Wow. Wow. Yes. Bow Wow. <laughs> but his magical thing was not his mind. It was his body, but that's, I guess that's another, that's for the masculinity people to deal with. Hmm. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just like, I think, I think, yeah, I think that's a really fantastic point. And I think that we can let people really ponder with that one. You sit with it. And then just say the last thing I have to say about this movie is not Forrest Whitaker dancing to (laughs) Afrobeats. I was like, okay, they're doing a little Afrobeat tune in this thing. And then, and then Forrest Whitaker is trying to... Da- I was just like, not Forrest Whitaker dancing. Oh my goodness. Is he trying to rebrand right now? You know, after <laughs> the Black Panther, you, I know you didn't <laughs> think that he was not about to throw it. So Afrobeast after Black Panther. That's what Black he- Panther. <laughs> Black oh Panther. my goodness. Um, I loved it. I loved the dancing. I thought they chose, with the exception of Forrest Whitaker, I thought they chose people with great voices. <laughs> I thought you said he gave the performance of his life. The Afro beats. I thought that was top tier. Honestly. <laughs> Miss Johnston, though, the postal woman. Okay. That was so cringy. So cringy. So just, I was really confused about what point they were trying to make about her character. I, maybe I was like, maybe they're trying to say that Ronnie, Jeronicus, Jerry still got it. You know, maybe that's what they're going with. Mm-hmm. But she, she's beautiful. She's talented. I honestly wish that she, she deserved a real love interest storyline, in my opinion, or like a validating love interest storyline. Yeah. Not a little peck on the cheek at the yeah. end under a mistletoe. I saw her as almost an amalgamation of all archetypes of black women. So mm-hmm. she had, you know, she has the, 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 the body that would make people kind of mammify her. Mm-hmm. 
But then she had this kind of Jezebel vibe where she was always really chasing after and trying to seduce Jerry slash Geronicus. We're both uh, like dancing right now. Just, <laughs> just for those of you don't a know. little bit to the beat. Um, <laughs> and I, I just agree. I, I think that she, she deserved more and better. And I was just disappointed that, you know, the, the plus size dark skinned black woman was basically the, the brunt of a lot of the jokes. Like, her interest in Jerry was essentially comic relief. And I think that we see that a lot with, um, mm. with, with plus size black women. Like that's, mm. that's often their role in films. Right. Like nobody could ever be interested in you. So it's just a joke that you would ever, it's meant to be comedy that you would ever assume that somebody would, or that you would try to get a man or something right. like that. And if they, and if there is an interest in them romantically, it's usually by someone who is a, you know, a quote unquote, like chubby chaser, or, you know, they have a, they have some kind of a fetish or, and they comment on, on like their size, on their weight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's a weird, it's a weird dynamic. And I think what Destiny and I decided once we closed the movie out was that the writer of this movie was trying mm -hmm. to really pick up on a lot of different themes throughout the generations of popular movies <laughs> and TV themes. And and so we kind of see an amalgamation of that throughout. Um, another character, though, I think speaks to what you were just saying was like Monique's character in The Parkers. It's kind of this mm -hmm. like Monique is a beautiful beautiful woman who's trying to be with this professor <laughs> and you know it's it's seen as like an unequal pairing or whatever mm -hmm. and yeah and so she that like pushy kind of woman so I, I that's what I when I saw Miss Johnson I was like oh is he trying to like draw on Nikki Parker here mm, and if so like like why like we because he is called professor people call him professor doctor yeah I didn't know if he I don't know. There's, I feel like every movie has that, or not, not every movie, but a lot of movies, particularly, you might call them BBMs. I call them FUBU movies, the for uh, us, by oh. us movies. But there's often that, the, the quote unquote, you know, fat black friend mm -hmm. who's there for comic relief. Yes, I think that the, the fat black friend is kind of, is a trope that is often used for comic relief, particularly mm -hmm. in, in black movies. And in TV shows, I think, you know, you saw it in, in Moesha. Yep. Probably in Moesha. Yvonne in the TV show Girlfriends. She wasn't really a friend, but she, and she isn't fat either, but you know what? I'm going to take that part out. But but then the body standards were different though. Two thousand, yes, yeah, different body standards. So like people That's who true. who be written as thick or even normal size now were were written as fat characters. In yes, the early 2000s. so Yvonne was written as a fat character. Yeah, because so I remember thinking of Joan, who's played by Tracy Ellis Ross, as thick. Like I thought of her as someone who was like a thick woman. And I'm watching it now, and I'm like, she is thin like she's a very slim mm -hmm. girl okay she had like a you know she had a curvy behind that caught her the, the half on the five and a half rating by her boyfriend ellis terrible oh, man. oh my god but, <laughs> but i do remember reading her more as thick and reading yvonne as fat and so it was just i the reason i was like actually i'm gonna take that out was because when i watched it again i was like oh she wasn't like all everyone who was on that show was slim yeah because even in the parkers yes monique was a fat black woman and she talked about and that was like part of her of her monumental like presence in this industry was to be unapologetically fat but kim like her daughter 
right? Who was actually not fat. She's just normal size, but she was bigger than Brandy in Moesha. Mm-hmm. So she was the like fat slash dumb friend character. Right. And right. so, yeah, fat phobia, I feel like that is something that we, we've talked about it a bit. So we might have to come back to it in an episode on, on body image, which is deeply tied to black women's bodies for sure. Fat phobia mm-hmm. is deeply tied to our bodies. But, okay, we're getting way off topic. I know. (laughs) So to bring it all back, I think another place where we saw Black Girl Magic in action was the election. So you look at articles now, they all talk about how Black women, well, not all of them, but they talk about how Black women saved the Democrats, saved democracy. Again. Period. And it's like that every single election. So according to exit polls, 91% of Black women voted Democrat. In the 2016 election, 94% of Black women voted for Hillary. So we, we out you. Well, I mean, not we, because I'm going to say we, I'm going to say you. I don't know, because I'm not a Black American woman. <laughs> but when I say we, I mean Black women. But I think that the other thing that we saw is that like Black women were working to ensure that voters could vote, that people mm-hmm. could vote. They were the ones at polling stations, manning the, po- manning the polling stations. Um, they were the ones counting votes. And so they're literally on the front lines in the face of voter suppression, voter intimidation. So it's not just that Black women will show up to vote. We also get others to the polling stations. Yes. So sure, Black women saved America. But why y'all got to keep making us do it? Period. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like, oh like God. damn. Save yourselves. So black women saved America, but then who's going to save us when black women are disproportionately evicted from homes, five Mm -hmm. times more likely to die during childbirth than white women? Mm -hmm. It's just further evidence that black women are the mules of the world. We show up. We take care of things. It's all done without thanks, gratitude, or recognition. Mm -hmm. And so I just think it's funny how the front lines are literally behind the scenes. It's like we're doing all of this work behind the scenes. That actually is some of the most important work that's being done and then getting no recognition for it. And then it's like, okay, what's going to happen in the next election? White women are going to be forgiven for the 74%. I'm making that number up. I don't remember how much it was. It's like 50. It's like more than half of y'all. For the 50% who voted for Trump, they're going to be forgiven. The Democrats are going to be like, please come back to our side. Let's, we, we want you back. What can we do for you? And it's impossible to win them over because they're invested in keeping their brothers, fathers, sons, husbands in power. And then they're just going to simply expect and count on the loyalty of black women to be magic, literally to magically help them win the election again. Literally. But then as soon as, you know, things are said and done, ignore our needs and demands or tell us that we're asking for too much. Mm. It's disappointing. And I say black girls are magic. We do magical things. We live magical lives. We make something out of nothing all the time, point blank, period. And I look forward to a world in which we are allowed to turn all that magic inward to ourselves. Mm. Like my magic don't have to be a spell that I got to put on you to make you act right and do right by me. I'm going to do right by myself and you can get with the program or you can stay at home. Mm-hmm. That's how I'm living my life now. I invite other people to join me when you can. See what I mean? Always the right thing to say. Superpower. I feel good. I feel inspired. <laughs> I'm just like, damn. Tell me on the other side of fuck this shit. <laughs> 
All right, that is it. You see, we just keep wanting to talk. I just keep wanting to go on, but we we must end our our final episode. So thank you all so much for listening today and throughout the semester. It has been a joy getting to do this with you, Brendan, and also chatting with y'all, the listeners in, you know, in our various forums. And we will be back in February with a new season, new topics, hopefully some of them suggested by you. New hot fire. Pow, pow, pow. Pow, pow, pow. Uh, this is like literally been the highlight of my 2020 it's been a lot of work but like i feel so good and thank you Alyssa, for just your brilliance and your amazingness like this is <laughs> oh child okay i actually am about to cry let me move no. on my pisces moon is popping up um <laughs> but before we go we have one last surprise for you um, thanks for listening so far. If you add the hashtag reading with ZD to your comments on Instagram, you can get an extra entry in our book giveaway. Hey, see see what we do for y'all, those of you committed listeners who get right <laughs> to the end. But anyways, while we're on break, we'll still be on social media. So feel free to connect with us on Instagram at Zoras Daughters and Twitter at Zoras underscore daughters. You know, just slide into the DMs, send us a little holiday gift, a little New Year's what's up, you know, whatever, whatever is in your heart, whatever gets put on your heart, in your mind, just shout us out. Shout us out. Shout us out. Thank you. Thank you so much for a wonderful semester and the year that has been 2020. Remember, we must take care of ourselves and each other. Bye. Bye. Bye.